Welcome to Curious Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. Hello, everybody, and welcome back. This is the beginning of our ninth season of Curious Canadian History. In the late 1860s, a man named Henri Le Caron was rising up within the innermost circles of the Fenian Brotherhood. He had served alongside Fenian leader John O'Neill during the U.S. Civil War, and by the end of the 1860s found himself helping O'Neill organize and plan an invasion of Canada. Yet what O'Neill and so many others didn't know was that Henri Lacaron's real name was Thomas Beach. And Beach wasn't working for the Fenians. He was a spy working for the Canadian and British authorities. The work of Thomas Beach would help foil a Fenian invasion of Canada and contribute to the collapse of that radical organization. This is Season 9, Episode 1, Henri Le Caron, the Victorian Super Spy. Today's book recommendation is titled Delusion, the true story of Victorian super spy Henri Le Caron. The author is Peter Edwards, and the book was published by Key Porter Books in 2008. To understand Henri Le Caron's emergence as a super spy, we need to first understand the intelligence situation in Canada during the 1860s. Operating in both the United States and Canada during this period was the government constabulary for frontier service, basically Canada's secret police. Now, the origins of Canada's secret police were rooted in an event that had occurred back in 1864. This was known as the St. Albans Raid. And you see, at that time, the United States was in its fourth year of a bloody civil war. In that October of 1864, a group of Confederate cavalry crossed the border from Canada East into Vermont and raided the small town of St. Albans. Three banks were robbed, a gunfight broke out, and after failing to burn the town to the ground, the raiders then retreated back into Canada East. Now, While their immediate aims were to hit at a northern U.S. town and steal money, the larger aim was to increase Anglo-American tension. You see, the Confederacy was always hopeful that Britain would enter the war and declare its support for them. In the aftermath of the St. Albans Raid, Canadian authorities ordered the formation of the secret police, with a branch in Canada West and another one in Canada East. You see, Canadian authorities were very concerned about the possibility that a spike in Anglo-American tension might lead to war. The first move by the U.S. if war came between Britain and the States would, of course, be an invasion of the Canadas, just like we saw back in the War of 1812. Now, even if a military action was not the consequence of increasing tension, there was the possibility that increasing tension could negatively affect 
Canadian trade with their southern neighbors, something that many Canadians and British North Americans relied extensively upon. Thus, the security of the border to mitigate any possibility of a rise in tension had to be ensured. In Canada East, the constabulary was run by William Ermattinger, the son of a fur trader and Ojibwa woman, Ermattinger had served with the British Auxiliary Legion in Spain in the 1830s and then became superintendent of police in Montreal when he returned from that conflict. He then was put in charge of the Montreal Water Police, a police force first formed in 1851, which was responsible for patrolling the waterfront in Montreal and enforcing law and order in its harbors and canals. In fact, much of Ermattinger's recruits came from this specific branch. By the late 1850s, Ermattinger was made inspector of the volunteer militia, and by the 1860s was responsible for stopping the work of aggressive Union military recruiters operating in Canada East, as well as rounding up any Confederates who had escaped into the Canadas. It was clear that Ermattinger was a natural choice to lead Canada's secret police. Now, his counterpart in Canada West was Gilbert McMicken, and McMicken was cut from a much different cloth than Ermattinger. Originally from Scotland, McMicken worked in a variety of cross-border projects. He was a collector of customs. He helped build the first telegraph line into the U.S., He was even part of the project to build the Queenston-Lewiston Suspension Bridge. And all the while, he was working his way up the political ladder, becoming a member of Canadian Parliament. At this time, the two Canadas shared the same Parliament. Through his rise in the political world, McMicken became close to future Canadian Prime Minister John A. Macdonald. With this important political connection, coupled with McMicken's work in the U.S., he was appointed head of the secret police in Canada West. Now, when the Civil War ended in 1865, the work of the secret police shifted from spying on Confederate agents to focusing on a radical Irish-American organization known as the Fenian Brotherhood. Now, we've encountered the Fenians quite a few times in Curious Canadian History episodes of the past. But as a reminder, the Fenians were an Irish Republican organization that operated in North America via a series of lodges, or in modern-day parlance, cells. The broad objective was to secure independence for Ireland. But by 1865, the leadership had its sights set on British North America. If they could draw British troops to British North America, then an uprising in Ireland may have a chance at success. Thus, with so many Irish-American veterans returning home from the front lines, the Fenians suddenly had a wave of potentially trained military recruits, and in turn, this spurred massive rumors about potential Fenian attacks on Canadian soil. It was in this tense environment that Thomas Beach emerged. Now, Beach was born in Colchester in 1842. 
and at the age of 20, Beach left England to seek adventure, and he found it by enlisting with the Union Army in their civil war with the American South, the Confederacy. Entering the U.S. Army, however, he changed his name to Henri Le Caron, claiming both French and English heritage. Now, during his time in the war, he served primarily in the Western theater, particularly in the state of Tennessee, where he was eventually promoted to lieutenant of the 13th U.S. Colored Infantry, which was based out of Nashville. During this time, Beach befriended a man named John O'Neill, himself a captain in the 17th U.S. Colored Infantry. O'Neill would go on to become one of the leading Fenians in the post-war period. Now, Le Caron, as we will refer to him from here on out, certainly was able to cultivate a persona. He was well-dressed, courteous in manners, charming, cheerful, humorous, and a person who kept their political opinions to themselves. Le Caron was thus very likable and ingratiated himself to all those around him. In 1867, Caron returned to Colchester, of course, reassuming his birth name of Thomas Beach. Now, that same year, while Caron was in Colchester, a Fenian bombing of a jail in London stirred up widespread anti-Irish sentiment amongst many English. Caron was very much swept up in this pro-English anti-Irish sentiment, and he availed himself to his local Colchester MP, Member of Parliament, stating that he was friends with leading American Fenian John O'Neill. By the beginning of 1868, Caron was thus officially hired as an informer for the British Secret Service Department, and he made his way back to the United States to begin spying on the Fenians. Now, Almost immediately, Caron re-entered O'Neill's trusted inner circle, and he began sending back weekly reports to London. By April of that year, Caron had been appointed district organizer for the Fenians in Illinois. Later that year, Caron sent a letter of introduction to the Canadian Governor General Lord Monk, as well as the Prime Minister John A. Macdonald. After these letters of introduction arrived at their intended destination, Caron then met in Detroit with none other than spymaster Gilbert McMicken. McMicken saw the value that Caron could offer the Canadian Secret Service, and thus Caron was brought on to the organization at $100 a month salary. He was also already getting paid 50 pounds a month from the British. As McMicken wrote, I fully believe he is the best card we have got yet. Now, Calron wasn't the only agent McMicken had inside the Fenian Brotherhood. Two other spies were also reporting back, but it was clear that Calron was the rising star within the organization and seemed to be on a trajectory towards a position of leadership. The Canadian Secret Police, which now formed part of the newly created Dominion Police Force based in Ottawa, had numerous assets working on the Fenians in both Ontario and Quebec, as well as throughout the United States. Yet, it was Caron who was the closest to the key leader O'Neill, and thus quickly became the most valuable asset Canada had. For the next two years, Caron's reports illuminated a picture 
of Athenian organization fraught with difficulties. John O'Neill continually called for an attack on Canada, yet time and time again, when it seemed the Fenians were on the cusp of carrying through with it, the plans fell apart. One major reason was funding. O'Neill had a hard time gathering the funds that were needed to recruit, train, and equip an attacking force. Another problem was constant infighting amongst the Fenians. O'Neill was slowly building up enemies within the organization who progressively saw an attack against Canada as futile and a waste of resources. Now, Caron's reports reflected all of this. These constant stop and starts with invasion planning, concerns over money, and bickering amongst the leadership. In the summer of 1868, Le Caron reported back that a Fenian invasion was imminent and that the Fenians were in talks with ex-Confederate generals P.T. Beauregard and Nathan Bedford Forrest. But like so many reports before, that summer passed without actual Fenian mobilization and the Fenian leadership lost the support of those Confederate generals who saw the movement as a lost cause. Le Caron then reported that major mobilization was planned for the spring of 1869 on the heels of a new American election. But once again, this mobilization collapsed. Le Caron wrote at this time how Fenian morale was declining. He states, everyone is disheartened and considered the only favorable opportunity lost. By this point, Le Caron was reporting that the Fenian leadership was truly splitting at the seams. Despite a lack of funding, O'Neill was hell-bent on carrying out an attack on Canada. But many others within the Fenian leadership saw O'Neill as unreasonable in his focus on a military invasion, and frankly, many saw no benefit in any attack. In fact, writing about O'Neill, Le Caron said he feels that he must move or die on account of so many promises made by him. At the same time that Le Caron was reporting on Fenian activity in the U.S., he was also sending back any names of Fenians operating in Canada. Fenian agents and sympathizers were located in Ottawa, Montreal, and Quebec City, and Le Caron was able to compile a list of names for the Canadian government. Now, we have to admit that it was pretty incredible that Le Caron was providing such a wealth of intelligence to Ottawa and London, while at the same time continually being promoted within the Fenian organization. By 1869, Le Caron had been made a colonel, and appointed Adjutant General of the Fenian Armed Forces. Basically, this meant Le Caron was going to be the officer organizing the logistics for any attempted invasion. This meant that Le Caron could provide British and Canadian authorities with intel on weapons depots, the numbers of soldiers being recruited and trained, equipment purchases, and even the general strategy for any potential invasion. In the winter of 1869, for instance, Le Caron was able to submit the entire Fenian war plan for a proposed winter invasion. 
The plan called for a feint attack from Buffalo across the Niagara River, and this makes sense because it was the axis of advance for a Fenian invasion back in 1866, culminating in the famous Battle of Ridgeway. Meanwhile, there would be an actual two-pronged thrust going towards Montreal and Ottawa. As well, the Fenians hoped that their agents working within Canada would then rise up to support them with their own organizations. It's interesting to note the debate going on in Ottawa over what to do with Le Caron's intel. Some felt that the information should be turned over to the Americans so that they could disrupt the planning and stop the Fenians before an invasion could even occur. But others, and this included Le Caron, felt that the Canadian government should allow the Fenians to carry out the invasion and then crush them militarily. As Le Caron wrote, if the movement would be allowed to take place and you are able to crush it and kill it, I think that would be the best. However, the Fenian ability to not follow through with their plans once again showed itself. By mid-December, many within the Fenian leadership were strongly against any sort of action that winter, and O'Neill was once again forced to back down. However, the next year, O'Neill would finally get his chance to strike, and no one was going to stop him, and Le Caron was going to be right in the middle of it. Curious Canadian history will be back after the break. Hi, I'm Phelan Johnson. And I'm Leah Simone Bowen, and we look at history a bit differently. Have you ever wondered how hundreds of wild horses came to inhabit an island in the Atlantic Ocean? Or what Lord of the Rings and a small town in Manitoba have in common? Or the burning question, did Canada invent the teen drama? The Secret Life of Canada is a podcast about the country you know and the stories you don't. New episodes available now wherever you get your podcasts. Folks, I know that sometimes advertisements can get in the way of a good story. And here at CCH, we never want a good story's momentum broken up. But the fact is, we rely on advertisement for the financial support needed to continue to make this show. That being said, there is a way to access CCH episodes advertisement-free. If you go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, Com and you search for Curious Canadian History, you can access all our episodes ad-free by just donating $1 or 2 bucks to the podcast. It's easy, safe, and a great way to get this content without the ads. You see, Patreon even has an app, so you can simply use the app on your phone like you would be using any of your podcast apps and have every new CCH episode right there at your fingertips ad-free. Check out Patreon.com slash Curious Canadian History today and join the club. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. In January of 1870, O'Neill sent word to Le Caron to begin collecting arms, ammunition, and send out word that recruits were going to be needed for an upcoming campaign. Despite the Fenian leadership now being very much split, with those supporting O'Neill and a significant number opposed to direct action against Canada, O'Neill decided he was going to go ahead with an attack with or without support from the rest of the Fenian leadership. In fact, Le Caron reported back to McMicken 
that O'Neill planned to call a Fenian Congress for February. But this Congress was just a ruse. It was intended to lull O'Neill's opponents into thinking no action was going to occur. And then instead, a few days before the Congress was set to take place, O'Neill planned to finally launch his attack into Canada. Effectively, O'Neill's opponents in the Fenian Brotherhood, along with American and Canadian authorities, would all be taken by surprise when the Fenians moved north. The preparations for this campaign were entirely entrusted to Le Caron, who knew where almost every weapon was located and could identify each invasion point and muster location. Again, though, other agents were also operating within Fenian circles. And one of the interesting things is that at this time, O'Neill was particularly worried about American detectives working for both the U.S. military and American government. In fact, at one point, O'Neill felt the Americans were too close, and Le Caron was ordered to move all the weapons to new locations. Once again, he reported this all to Ottawa. At this point, O'Neill was suspicious that spies were closing in on his plans, and Le Caron even began to get anxious about his own position. Did O'Neill think he was a spy? Because of this, Le Caron was successful in requesting that another detective be sent down from Ottawa to shadow him, just in case Le Caron found himself in trouble. Unfortunately, this detective, John C. Rose, was discovered by the Fenians, and though he never gave up Le Caron, he was beaten so badly that he spent months recovering. Now, the February Congress never materialized. Instead, O'Neill changed his mind once again and set the Congress for April, meaning that the impending attack was now also pushed to early spring. During this period, Le Caron's reports and others coming in identified two key issues with the Fenians. Firstly, their money was drying up, and thus O'Neill felt even more pressure to carry out an attack before the funds were gone. Secondly, the Fenian leadership was fracturing rapidly, and O'Neill was finding himself besieged by Fenian members who no longer saw him as fit to be their leader. O'Neill's main base of support was in the Vermont, New York area, and it was there that he continued to lead preparations for what was looking more and more like plans that would actually be carried out that year. This meant that Le Caron remained busy building up arms and ammunition for this eventual Fenian advance. He even met with several key Fenians who had come down from Canada, where they shared plans and swapped names of key figures within Canada who would support an uprising. All of this was sent back to Ottawa. By this point, reports were coming into Ottawa from a variety of sources in the field. One report even mentioned Le Caron as a leading figure in the impending attack. That source clearly did not know that Le Caron was working for the Canadians. In mid-April, as it seemed that O'Neill was on the cusp of launching his attack, the Canadian government responded by sending military personnel to key crossing points at the border. At this point, O'Neill was convinced there was a spy amongst his followers, and yet, incredibly, de Caron escaped detection. While focus on rooting out this traitor actually fell on the wrong person, 
and Le Caron escaped suspicion. Now, all this, of course, was for the benefit of Ottawa, especially in May of 1870, when O'Neill finally launched his attacks. Even Le Caron was caught off guard by the suddenness of O'Neill's call to move. He had hoped he would have advanced warning of the call to march, but even O'Neill realized that the less people who knew his plans, the less chance those plans would get to the authorities. Thus, even Le Caron was surprised when word came down on the 21st of May to get ready to march out. To sum up, the two Fenian invasions of 1870 were a disaster. At Eccles Hill near Saint-Jean-Québec, a local Canadian militia known as the Home Guards had learned from their own intel sources that a Fenian force was moving towards their area. On the morning of the 25th of May, this force was led by O'Neill, who was marching there with about 160 soldiers. Now, O'Neill was waiting on a larger contingent of men coming from New York, a larger contingent that seemed to be taking long to get there. This contingent was led by none other than Le Caron. Now, this contingent was delayed, and so O'Neill marched out without them. And according to Le Caron, he purposefully delayed the arrival of these reinforcements, a delay of two hours, instead of the roughly 30 minutes that it was supposed to take for these reinforcements to arrive. It's also said that Le Caron disabled the only artillery piece that the Fenians had. Now, Le Caron reportedly told this to McMicken, yet this fact or this destruction of the artillery piece doesn't show up in Le Caron's own autobiography. Regardless, O'Neill's force, lacking artillery and reinforcements, was quickly chased back across the border by the Home Guards, or the Red Sashes as they called themselves, O'Neill himself was taken prisoner. The second attack occurred on the 27th of May at Trout River, near the town of Huntington. A Fenian force of about 300 men crossed the border and established themselves within a barricade. To meet them came a British-Canadian force of about 1,000 men who quickly overwhelmed the Fenians, and within about an hour and a half, the Fenians were retreating back across the border. The threat to Canada had ended, and within a year, the general anxiety over Fenians declined precipitously in Canada, and never again would the Fenians be any serious threat to Canadian sovereignty. Le Caron had done his job well. Ottawa and London continually were kept up to speed on Fenian activities, and when the attacks finally came, Canada was well prepared to repel them. Incredibly, None of these defeats led to Le Caron being found out. He continued to work for the British authorities within Irish Republican circles. The Fenians themselves pretty much fell apart in the aftermath of 1870, but Le Caron was able to infiltrate one of the successor organizations known as the Clan Nagel. He continually reported on the activities of this organization until in 1889 he broke his cover when he finally testified on the stand in regards to a special inquiry into the activities of Irish parliamentarian Charles Parnell. In the aftermath of Le Caron's public admittance of working for the British authorities, he received many death threats, though none came to fruition. 
three years later, he achieved some form of international fame when he published his autobiography. It was called 25 Years in the Secret Service, The Recollections of a Spy. With his fame and notoriety, he had a bodyguard for the remainder of his life, though the remainder of his life would not be very long. He passed away from complications with peritonitis in London in 1894. When he died, he was hailed as one of the British Empire's most famous super spies. I want to thank you all for listening today. Don't forget, you can find me on Twitter at Doc Boris. That's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Patreon. And you can find us on all podcast listening devices. And please do not hesitate to write and leave a comment. We love to hear from you. I'm David Boris. Stay curious, friends. Mm-hmm.